Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to Barn Blog, and today we're with friend of the show, Greg Belvedere, writer, um, librarian, and stay-at-home dad, uh, and occasional knower about ecology. Um, how did you get into this ecology stuff, Greg? Um, I don't know. It m- must have been in the mid-aughts um, when I started to pick up on some of like the peak oil scene. And, you know, a lot of those guys are cranks. I mean, I would say almost all of them, Um, but they definitely hit upon things that a lot of people weren't paying attention to that I think are really important, Um, you know, chiefly amongst them, like just resource scarcity. And I think on the left, we have a aversion to talking about resource scarcity because if you follow the logic of resource scarcity to a certain ends it can lead you towards some like real dark places and we can talk about that later in terms of where someone like john michael greer has has gone recently although he's starting to walk it back now that biden's in because you know he he tries to play to the play to the room um yeah, I noticed that about John, the good old Arch Druid. Surprisingly so, actually. I used to listen to him, actually, about the same time that you're talking about the peak oilers. I used to, like, read the Arch Druid reports and 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 whatnot. I found him interesting and occasionally insightful, but more right-wing than he was letting on. I mean, I think it's actually somewhat consistent um, with with what he was pushing. Um, same with J- uh, James Howard Kunstler, who was considered a progressive in the aughts, but, you know, basically fetishized the 18th century. Um, uh, conversely though, I do, I, I do see what you're talking about with a lot of the left. As soon as you start mentioning actual resource scarcity, um, are that, some renewable energies are more limited than others and that the ones that we're actually pursuing are the more limited ones or um, a variety actually of various uh, complications to um, tying a bright green ecology. A big one being like I saw on Twitter the other day uh, being anti-nuclear is equivalent to being an anti-vaxxer. And and no, all right, nothing nothing gets me like Vaughn levels of rage more than people who go like all in on nuclear. 
Like I, like I look running the plants we have now till they're ready for decommissioning is one thing, but even like trying to extend the life of some of those when they're starting to fall apart, let alone building new ones. is just, it drives me crazy on so many levels. Like there isn't by all accounts that I've looked at, there isn't enough fissile material to, if we if we were to start building the amount of plants that the pro nuclear advocates are talking about, there wouldn't be enough uranium to power them until they're ready to be decommissioned. It's like such a short sighted proposition. And then right. you get in, then you get into the just the sheer cost, like plants running twelve hundred percent over budget, and just all these ridiculous things. And you know the fact that we don't have a structure on earth that is has lasted as long as the storage facility we would need to build in order to contain this stuff. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just on and on and on. Um, I always get, you know, or the externalities of these places are near water and they're running out of water or they're getting flooded. And it's, it's kind of amazing. It's, it's kind of, yeah, when leftists start talking about that and say, like, Oh no, we have to do nuclear. I, I that's like a big that's like a big pet peeve of mine. I just go I don't know so now. So the nuclear stance has always struck me as because I used to be one of these people who was not all in on nuclear, but it's like okay, we have to use nuclear as a transition fuel. Uh, none of the current ones are ready. Um, and I'll tell you the books that got me out of it. It was William Volman's um, two massive books on climate change mm-hmm. um, uh, where he goes into the stats on nuclear uh, and talks about, yes, that Fukushima's uh, um, specific conditions were unique to the fact it was an out-of-date plant. But here are the thousands of co-variables that would still apply. Um I also agree, however, or maybe not agree, but I I, I strongly disadvise decommissioning currently active nuclear yeah. plants. Yeah. Like we should be using them if they're already operational. Yes. Um, but you know, so I, I I guess I take a moderate position on on, on nuclear still. Um, but it's it's something that it's not immediately apparent because we've been sold that nuclear energy is more or less free energy from the splitting of atoms without dealing with the fact that it requires fissile material and that, and that it's used up. Um, that is not even dealing with all the, the somewhat slight, frankly, overhyped dangers of, of nuclear meltdown. And the reason why I say they're overhyped, if, if you look at the deaths related to coal um, and gas powered, uh, energy plants, uh, they're actually higher than anything we would probably see with nuclear meltdowns. It's just that they're more diffuse over time. They're not they're not catastrophic death factors, right? Um, uh, but I bring all this up because basically what you and I are going to talk about today is how most discussions of, and including primitivist ones, because I, I don't want to let all the like, deep green hippie weirdos off the hook um don't really deal 
with likely outcomes of systems, um, likely ex- social economic blowback, etc. Uh, I, the, the number one example of that is um, while the Green New Deal did actually have uh, jobs repurposing in it, um, most legislation inspired by it drops the job repurposing part because it's it, because it's more expensive, um, which is a way to turn rural populations. Now, admittedly, they're not the majority of populations, but the, but they are the people who produce your food um, and your energy. <laughs> Um, against most forms of ecology off the bat. And it's a problem that I, I work with um, someone who works with the Sierra Club here, and he, he was brought on to do uh, POC inclusion in the Sierra Club, right? To, you know, we could bring it up to, because there's all this talk of white liberalism. It's kind of the rage these days um, to sound like an old an old guy. But he actually realized that, no, there are plenty of people doing the POC inclusion. That actually, like, when you went out to the communities to actually make a difference in Sikiara cover out- outreach, nobody was talking to the rural populations at all. And they're the people who own the land and need to cooperate. Yeah, and I to, to kind of circle back to, uh, like, someone like John Michael Greer, he's someone who's very good at playing off of that shortcoming. He's the first person to talk about, uh, you know, oh, these these liberal environmentalists, they don't care about, you know, X, Y, Z group of working people in rural areas or wherever else. And he's, you know, very, very good at making hay about that. And we kind of, you know, leave the field open to people like him when we just ignore that. And it's it's frustrating. Um, I don't know, like the the thing that's really the on a on a larger scale where i see this problem is you know the the old thing like you know the us is what 5% of the world population roughly and we use i forget what it is a third or a quarter of the world's energy or a third of a quarter of the world's resources and yeah, we used to anyway i actually don't think that's still true but uh, we're yeah, still we, really high yeah. but yeah well in any case it's it's disproportionate and then we have mm-hmm people in other countries who are adopting more of a, uh, you know, an American closer to an American lifestyle, India and China, right. Consuming, consuming more meat, more consumer products, more energy, air conditioning, transportation, you name it. And so there's something has to give, but what's going to give, because we all can't live that lifestyle, but we also can't tell people in, you know, these other parts of the world, like, well, no, we had our, we, you know, we had our party. You guys aren't going to have it. You guys aren't going to have it. You guys are going to have to deal with it. That's not workable either. Um, and something, something has to give. Um, and the approach of like the John Michael Greer's is, well, we just change our lifestyle and we make that lifestyle really, really appealing. You know, like we're just going to show them that a less energy intensive lifestyle is better. And in a certain way, there's something to that. Um, There is something to like, yeah, well, maybe if there was something better for people to aspire to that wasn't the American way of life, that would be great. But, you know, if is a big, that's a big F, you know, Um, and I. Well, there's also externalities to that. 
like if the if the lifestyle that you are um proposing is 17th century agrarian lifestyle that's not viable yeah for the population levels that we have it's not it's it's not 6% of the world's population now is urban yeah it's, it's a fundamental fact and ironically i mean as much as people like Kunstler and, and Greer don't like that. As far as the way we currently have things set up, urban lifestyles are better for the environment than suburban are are more people trying to live rural lifestyles but needing access to urban goods because it will increase transportation. You know, highly population dense um, settlements are energy efficient. But there's this, there's a backside to that that you and I know. Yeah, right. Like every- Everything's got to come from outside or not everything, but a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the agricultural products and, you know, whatever else has to come from outside. And so, I mean, usually the energy has to come from outside. I remember a primitivist making this argument to me that cities were inherently imperialist, which is both ridiculous actually, but also kind of true. I mean, when I say it's ridiculous, the idea that any, any net, export out to an you know to an import site um is inherently imperialism is weird because that makes all human trade with any sort of imbalance which there will always be a trade imbalance um uh imperialist um at a fundamental level beyond just like political advantage or unfair trade like this is just the idea of you have to centralize trade into this hub um but there is a way in which um, when I deal with a lot of uh, socialists or even even green people, honestly, um, there's no real reckoning with the food pyramid and with food pyramid with like, that's not what I mean. Uh, food pyramid. Not the not the nutritional yeah. chart from. No, the but the way the, the, the hierarchy of of agricultural production because one of the ironies right now is it might actually be really more inefficient for you to buy local produce than to buy farm produce not because it should naturally be more inefficient but because our our economies of scale and transportation mean that buying the local produce actually uses more energy ironically but that's only because of the way we have things set up. And this is going to become more and more volatile. COVID should have illustrated how volatile this is when we had certain trade things fall down. But we never really lost any major food stocks. Even the meat scare was actually somewhat manufactured. Um, because what the meat what the meat production being down did was actually stop us from exporting meat. Hmm. And what was actually going on is they were hoarding for export. Um, and when, when Trump did that special order and started meat production back up, they exported a whole lot of that meat and then meat returned to the market. It was kind of actually like a, a trade fix. Gotcha. Um, um, us meat product. I mean, it's, it's one of these astounding things, veganism. And I point this out to vegans and I don't mean to be an asshole about it. Cause I have a point about land use, right? Um, but veganism's popularity in the Western world is general social acceptance has gone up. 
Um, in the same period, in the same time period, it's gone up. Meat consumption worldwide's like tripled. Like, um, because for every white vegan who you know who does whatever, there is an entire food production system that does not share those values. Um, and historically may have been low meat use. They weren't vegan, but they were very low meat use. So think about Korean traditional food. Meat is used as a flavoring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of, a lot of Asian cuisine. It's, it's not, uh, yeah. Right. Or, or even, or even, uh, I'm, I might, this might be, this might not be accurate, but, uh, even like cultures before they came to the U S um, you know, the peasant cultures ate less meat. You know, oh yeah you, well yeah you ate you ate, uh, you ate it on sunday or holidays and things like this or you ate uh, you know you had much less of it um, well orthodox countries fasted half the year with no meat fast um uh so feast days were rare and feast days i mean which are normal days um uh which is when you ate meat um peasant in peasant england we have evidence from teeth that the peasants actually ate a really healthy diet as opposed to the ability who actually ate themselves to death on meat. Um, but that they didn't eat a lot of meat and you see wearing on their teeth consistent with that. Hmm. Um, in the U S even traditionally, uh, until modern agribusiness, I don't know how much meat as the main course of a meal we could say was part of our diet until the middle to end of the 19th century. And it was associated with people needing the meat and needing the protein for industrial production, which actually came out of the Victorian um, quasi science around nutrition. Um, I mean, one of the things, even like Oliver Trist, if you like look at the recipe for the gruel, there's a ton of meat in it. Like it's like meat and oats and that's it. But that's like, it's just boiled. It's like boiled crap meat. Um, traditionally like soul food, for example, which is not good for you by any stretch of the imagination, but how like the pork products uh, and it was primarily pork was used was again, as a flavoring. So you have pork fat be- and, and, you know, and as a, and as a calorie enhancer. So you have pork fat, organ meats, um, and that sort of thing being mixed with vegetables and probably not eaten in large amounts by themselves. So that's all a major change in the human diet. Um, uh, and yeah, every now and then, you know, I, st- I feel guilty for drinking almond milk or whatever. Um, and you, you can take my cheese from my cold dead hands, vegans. But um, in a real sense that anytime you use any kind of, even if it's not great for the environment and none of the milk substitutes are great for the environment, honestly, um, they're still way better than cow milk because they're going to be like five times more efficient and the, in its use of land. Yeah. Well, and then there's, there's this interesting thing that like, if uh, with, with whatever it is, six or 7 billion people, you know, we're not sustaining, you know, people eating meat every day. But you could, and I haven't crunched the numbers, but you could conceivably, you know, have a population that ate meat like people did in the past, you know, and have it not be, you know, big CAFOs, big concentrated uh, agricultural feedlots, um, and instead be pastured. So it is, 
it is a less destructive use of the land and um, more humane for the animal and, and more humane for the animal. Like I don't touch pork for about a zillion reasons. Um, even though I'm Italian and you know, I, I, I like, I used to like my pork. Um, but uh, you know, like you can't, but you can't, you can't feed everybody meat every day. If everything is grass fed, it's just, it's just not happening. Like there's not enough, there's not enough land to do it. You can do it if you're feeding them grain and stuffing them all in a big, you know, a big factory together. But, you know, and so like, and there's also something to be said about having livestock as part of your agricultural unit where you're using them in, you know, for manure and all these, all these other things as part of a loop and, you know, as part of these systems. But again, we're so far removed from that. Our system is industrial and it's not geared towards that and so and when it's geared towards that it's boutique like it's ex- hyper yes boutique. yes 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 and this is this is the problem with so many of these things if you and this is the, the obvious problem with you know people just going for individual consumption is that you tell people to do that and then it just creates these markets for these boutique things um and it doesn't really do it it's just another commodity out there for people to buy and it just recoups it into the whole thing again and it's uh... you see food energy is something that i used to i came at this the problem of 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 food and uh, my relationship to marxism in the mid-aughts because um as a person who grew up poor and then got injured and also had a a wrestler's diet. Mm. I became hyper morbidly obese um, after my knee was crushed um, in a sporting accident, which it's repaired now. But um, uh, so I, I sustained actually a bunch of in, uh, injuries in a short period of time, some related to work, some related to sports. Um, and regardless, but like by the time that I got married, I had blown up to like 300 pounds. And then two, like by the time I got out of grad school, I was like 325, 340 pounds, somewhere in there. I actually don't know. I wouldn't step on a scale. Um, I became obsessed with both ways to get more healthy. Um, because I don't say this to shame anyone, but I I was having health complications related to my weight that were severe. Um, and, um, but also trying to figure out why it was the poor people who were fat. Mm-hmm. Um, because that didn't make sense to me. <laughs> and I, I, I know, you know, we could talk about the sins of Michael Pollan. Now, some of his research is actually kind of shoddy. Um, uh, he made overclaims, but one of the things that I did get into from him was energy use in food, logistics in food, and the distortions of our food markets by subsidies. Yeah. Um, and this was tied into me, you know, becoming aware of general ecology and like food deserts. I grew up in in uh, a suburb that had like an IGA, mm. right? And so suburban food deserts are not as much of a problem anymore um, as they were, but like to go to a decent grocery store where my parents could afford to get food for us, they had to travel 30 minutes away, compound that, start doing the addition for, for like most of the Southeast and you'll figure out how this explodes. This got, when I left the United States, um, 
I lost about 50 pounds within a year and a half just by leaving. <laughs> um, and I'm serious about that. I, I lived in an urban environment. I didn't own a car. Um, I took the subway or walked everywhere I went around this entire smallish country, but still. Um, and I ate traditional Korean food because that's what I could easily get. Western food was expensive and I was trying to save money and I dropped weight like crazy. I wasn't trying to, I've yeah. been trying to for years and I couldn't. And then I just, I just, I dropped like 50 pounds. I dropped another 20 pounds. Then I gained like 20 pounds back. But like, you I also noticed that this entire ecosystem was set up differently. Um, now, South Korea is kind of an artificial situation. And um, when I say it's an artificial situation, it's not an island, but it acts like one. It has a complete trade blockade to its north, and the rest of it's surrounded by water. It's mountainous, um, and its land is not terribly great. And it has a ton of people. Um, so... I lived in an area where like I was in a rural area, but there were skyscrapers to preserve land. Mm. And so this started just having me change the way I thought about the entire way we set up North America. Um, because yeah, we have plenty of land, but we're, pro we were profligate with it and energy. And what I found yes. fascinating is we were profligate with it and energy at a time period where from the standpoint of even emissions, we could actually get away with it. I know that sounds obscene and weird, but like during the, like if you think about the thirties and forties, when things are just gas guzzling and you're, you're basically pouring oil on the crops. Um, we're still not in the period where most of the carbon emissions that have caused the atmospheric problems that we have actually began. You know, the high period of what of carbon production is from 60 forward, which is amazing to realize that part of what was going on there is like, not only did we have the resources, but we also didn't have the population mm -hmm. for, for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, wars, disease, uh, genocide, you go on, but the population of North America was probably significantly lower than you would expect. Um, it's, it's interesting. You bring that up about the skyscrapers in a rural setting, because I, one of the things that I think about a, a, a bit is just how completely we would need to rework like everything. Like I think about this all the time. Like, everything, like everything, like 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 our food system. Uh, you know, government, the economy, every like every bit of our way of life would need to change. Which is why I can't get excited about electric cars or even you know what even a more like robust green new deal because it's just it's not enough like everything needs we we don't need to like fix up what we have we need to you know trash it and like build something else but how do you do that are you going to put you know like uh, a rail line and a tram down every like major road so people take that instead of what you know like what does that even look like and how do you convince people it's worth while and get them to ditch and go without what they're used to for a while and how do you even conceive of it and organize it's just it's mind-boggling we could it's possible it's possible but it's not likely or probable by any stretch of the imagination i mean you can imagine it you could imagine you know more dense uh 
you know, more dense housing with, uh, you know, agricultural land close to it. You could imagine people who aren't engaged in, you know, the type of jobs where they're, in, in my opinion, they're doing meaningless stuff that oh, yeah. isn't, isn't going to, isn't going to be missed at all. I mean, um, and instead they could be, you know, involved in agriculture or, you know, manufacturing maybe or whatever but right right now like what we don't need them to be involved in we we produce more food than we need worldwide um with only two percent of the the developed world and probably only about 20 percent of the undeveloped world involved in direct agriculture which is crazy says a lot about our technology that we've used it for what we used it for where we have this capacity for efficiency like like, but I, I totally agree with you. Like, thinking about what we need to do. Like, I always bring up uh, this essay by Bordigo, which is from the 20s or 30s. It's called, like, Humans on the Earth's Crust. And he was one of the first people. And how I got into Bordigo was actually this essay. I mean, th- th- uh, you know, and I, I have my differences with him now. I've, the more I read of Bordigo, the more I kind of moved away from it. But he was at least talking about um the division between town and country creating inherent social class and energy use problems that had been with us since the 17th century and that if we were really serious about a classless society where modern efficiencies were allowed to exist we have to abolish the distinctions between town and country which means you have to get some of the stuff some of the efficiencies of the city out into the countryside and then get some of the land and participation in the land use and reconnection to it into the cities. And basically you're both de and re-urbanizing the entire world, which is, which is such an ambitious project. It's hard. It like boggles the mind. It seems so early a 20th century to be that, that ambitious, right? It's almost, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like Pierre de Chardin shit. Like, you know, it's right. just such a reimagination. It's like, what, really? Um, right. But when you think about stuff, and, and I, I negatively compared Bordega's themes to the technocrat, to Technocracy Inc., but Technocracy Inc., for all their weirdness, and we don't remember what they were now, they were also dealing with this. I mean, people think about the aughts, the Zetgeist movement, which was a weird, like, last remnant of some of their ideas. Um. But Technocracy Inc. was like trying to move away from capitalism too, trying to move away from politics altogether. Uh, and their goal was um, currency, a, a system where everything is run by technocrats um, who who take inputs from popular uh, popular will, but there's no politics. This is utopian. I'm not, mm-hmm. uh, there's yeah, no antagonism yeah, yeah. in the system. But that also the goal is energy usage and population are uh, are are steady state without being without it being like uto- uh, dystopianly mandated. So like your exchanges and your work credits and the, you know their labor tokens are also tied to energy expenditures and the total energy in the system, um, which they were talking about this in the tens and twenties. All right. So when people say that no one saw this coming, that's just not true. In fact, when it comes to like climate change and some of the other crises, we've known about this since the 50s for sure. Yeah. Um, 
But other people saw that there was a limited energy use. I mean, we, we really did almost come to a population crash where Malthusian, I'm not a Malthusianist, but what I tell people, and they don't like it when I say this, is without technological innovation and social organization, Malthusian calculuses are real. Yes. I mean, going back to the food, I mean, we can produce so much food with so few people being involved in agriculture because we just throw energy at it or we throw fossil fuels at it. We throw fossil fuel fertilizers at it. We throw machinery at it. We throw pesticides. We show nitrogen, which is really getting the fuck up the ocean and it's going to lead to a giant universe of squid monsters. And I'm only kind of joking. Yeah. I Um, I, I like, I like fried galmad, but man, like I'd like to eat some fish besides that. (laughs) I mean, it looks like your, your future is jellyfish and calamari because most of the other fish are going away. Yeah. Um, Jellyfish aren't that good. I've had them. So, you know, we talk about this and we're we're sounding very, uh, this sounds very off the cuff, but one of the things you and I talked about when it comes to peak oil, I believe actually peak oil has already happened. And what we have seen is, um, and and it actually benefited North America in a way that this is where the cranks didn't see what was coming because we had all these, uh, deep reserves and you know canada had the tar sands and while it's not particularly energy efficient in this transition period it's better than nothing and and better than being totally dependent on the saudis and you can and you can paper over it uh financially if you you know you can mesh with your book so it looks like you're turning more of a profit than you are if you if you do it right i mean that's right that's what yeah i used to explain i tried to explain to people once that like there was no blood for oil in Iraq, guys. Mm-hmm. It was blood for oil futures. And, and and people are like, what? I'm like, one, I don't actually think that that's totally explanatory for what was going on. But if you want to look at the actual effect, it was running the price of gas up for some corporations to benefit from. But we weren't actually stealing Iraqi oil. We were messing with the oil market. We were causing it to inflate and deflate. Um off of future speculation tied directly to the conflict. Like the financialization of this seems to be beyond again, because there's so many systems and this is high. We're talking about systems within systems of hyper complexity. And we're talking about both natural and social systems um, that people can't imagine that like, wait, we're not stealing the oil because we have, no, we had the oil here. We had the oil here the entire time. Um, but we're also financializing that oil and profits and the whole huge parts of the economy are tied into it um, and tied into it being steady state. Um, and, you know, that's not just for the U.S. I mean, ask Russia how it's the collapse of the oil market affect its day. Yeah. Um, you know, n- now. I want to point out that people who think, oh, we're having a return to this under Biden beyond the fact that he just said that was it this week? He was like, well, there's not sufficient data that we need to go beyond our mild Paris Accord agreement after the 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 U.S. agency, the IA, the IAEA. IAEA. Yeah, the IAEA's report indicated that they were lowballing it 
and every quote alarmist thing they were releasing and we're seeing the results of that undeniably that yeah. the feedback loops are happening faster than anyone predicted including the cranks i might add even though they were screaming that it was going to be worse but like well it was weird because it's weird because the cranks i i think when we talked uh last month we were talking mm. about how the, some of the cranks really thought that everything was going to crash maybe 10 years ago or so yeah i know a lot of people who thought that like i was like that i was gonna get stuck in korea <laughs> like. yeah yeah and and i mean my my kind of bumper sticker way i like to put it is rome didn't fall in a day you know or a year or a decade and global rome and it is global my friends yeah um is not gonna fall on a day either but um the idea that the american empire is just gonna fall and that's all oh that that's a lovely pipe dream yeah um china is being infinitely more responsible than the u.s in, in regards to this but it's still the number one polluter in the world yeah um and, and thank God it's being more responsible. But it also is trying to deliver on this promise of something like a life comparable to the West, even under, uh, you know, whatever hybrid capitalist socialist transition form they're saying they're doing right now. Um, for example, uh, diamonds. Uh, this is just one example. Uh, the price of diamonds right now may actually be tied to scarcity for the first time in like a hundred years because the, the Chinese and Indian market for them is that high. Wow. That's amazing. I just, Uh, even though De Beers had that on lock, like, no, I I actually watched the whole explainer saying that the beers, the beers monopoly actually ended 20 years ago and, and, and prices have still skyrocketed. The monopoly is not what's causing anymore. It is scarcity in compared to comparison to the market when people also do not accept artificial diamonds, which are chemically the same as real diamonds, um, as, uh, as the same. Hmm. So, um, so, you know, the, the cubic zirconia problem still is part of it, but like, I, I hear uh, jewel, I hear a good jeweler can't even tell nowadays. It's just it's, no, they're the, they're they're, they're, the they're same. chemically the same, it's the same. Like, yeah. um, but but all that aside, that there actually is real diamond scarcity now because um, just just assume a tenth of the population of India and China want it. Mm-hmm. Like the order of magnet, those two countries by themselves are orders of magnitude larger than the United States. And they are approaching a U.S. Li- well, not India so much, but China is approaching a U.S. lifestyle. Yeah. The, the CCP has been able to manage its capitalist transition fairly well. Um, and uh, and it is it is responding to this. I mean, there there is a sense, like, ad hoc. The policies are ad hoc. I was just listening to a, um, a policy analysis of what was going on in China. But they really are trying to do green development really fast, but it doesn't stop them. They've replaced the U.S. as number one polluter for now at least half a decade, if not longer. Um, So one of the things like this whole tension between U.S. and China scares me, because while I think probably all these nation states are somewhat doomed in the long run um, for reasons related to all this. Um, that in the short run, you need them to cooperate for things not to be a whole lot worse. Um, 
if China and the U.S. are not cooperating but trying to compete each other, um, uh, you know, we're we're screwed. Like 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 if if the number one old old polluter and the number one new polluter, even if the new even if the new polluter is really trying to be super responsible about it, but has ten to fifteen times the population. Or or they're competing in some way. I mean, that's just going to drive up, you know, energy usage and consumption and the whole shebang. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's I don't know. Um, it, it it is it is interesting. Like I, the more I look at the situation, the more I have no idea where to even to even start, especially. Um, just because there's so many basic things that when you try and talk to people about these things that they don't have a primer on. Um, and I think the one that I just want to like bring up, because if I do one thing on this pot uh, on this show right now, it's talk about net energy because the average, yeah, that's what, what I wanted to get you talking about the, because the average leftist or just the average person doesn't know what it is and it's like just such a simple and important thing you know energy return on energy investment uh net energy is the way you think about it if you have an energy source right for every one unit you put in of energy you put into getting it you get however many out with coal it's like 80 units and with conventional oil, it's like 40. And then I forget as you go down, it's like, I think wind is maybe 30 or 20. And then you get like to the shale and the fracked oil, it's low. And then like solar is around, I want to say it's around 20 or, 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 you know, like nuclear is maybe 15. And the thing about this is that you're not just looking for, oh, I want to replace it. I want to get one for one or even two for one or even five for one. You want to get as many f- units of energy for that one energy that you put one unit of energy that you put in out. So, I mean, that's why we burn so much coal because yeah, it's dirty as hell, but you can do so much with it because you don't have to spend all that energy putting it back into getting more coal out of the ground. You get so much energy out of it. And this is why renewables have such a limit and you can't just fix the problem by building more renewables you need to use less energy but getting people to use less energy is not easy when everything about the system pushes them to consume more and use more energy and so many of the ways they use energy are hidden and as a matter of fact net energy is actually it's kind of tricky to get good net energy stats i think probably the best place to get them is from the post carbon institute uh richard heinberg who is someone we haven't mentioned who is probably like the, the most sane of like the peak oil people you know he's more of like a left liberal i'd say you know uh maybe vaguely anti-capitalist but i don't i don't know what it is but but you know the post carbon institute they put out good numbers but anytime you go and try and get numbers on an energy source they're going to be skewed depending on who's talking about them and who's trying to promote what. If someone's a solar proponent and they're really big into solar, the solar numbers are going to be a lot higher in terms of net energy ratios. Um, if you know nuclear, same deal. Um, and but you can also get really far on the other end. You can have someone 
like the, the the study that uh john michael greer cites a lot is by uh prieto and hall and prieto yeah i think prieto is the guy who ran big solar installations in spain and hall was actually the guy who coined the term e-r-o-e-i i say net energy because e-r-o-e-i is kind of a mouthful but energy return on energy invested um but their like report on the efficiency of large solar installations is like almost too rigorous it's like they're they're taking into account the energy of like i don't know the the healthcare plans of the workers that had to you know show up that day but they're also taking into account the fact that if you put up solar panels in a dry plane you're going to have to wipe those suckers down pretty regularly or otherwise the dust is going to make them less efficient and so uh, you know a big thing is we're going to have to use less energy and there's something to be said about like a less energy intensive lifestyle like there are things that are nice about that in and of themselves. And a lot of people do them just because they're nice already, like, you know, gardening or hanging the laundry out to dry or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, there's lots of like little things, but that's not gonna, that's not gonna do it like that. Like changing personal consumption habits, isn't going to do it. Changing the apparatus by which people do all that consumption and production and everything else you know, that's, that'll do it. I mean, I like, um, I'm a big fan of, uh, this phrase from Ursula Le Guin's, uh, the dispossessed excrement. And I just see so much of what is created as just, this is actually an insult to actual excrement because actual excrement you can use for compost. This is just, just trash. Like the people making it don't give a shit. The people selling it don't give a shit. Half the people buying it or only like think they need it or whatever it is and it just ends up in a landfill almost immediately after it's purchased and there's so much production like this from people's jobs to products you see on the shelves now the tricky part about this is is you know one man's great product is another person's trash like i might walk down the aisles of a supermarket and see all the stuff on all the processed food and say this is fucking shit nobody should eat this what is wrong with these people or see like you know 400 different types of shampoo and say i don't even want to use one type of shampoo more than once a month but like but you can't tell people that like there's no way you're going to get people on board with that so what is the what is the solution there you know um I don't know, short of like reworking everything. But again, that's you, even if you have the vision, how do you get it? And that seems, I, I, I don't know. Um, the more I look at this problem, I, I, uh, uh, well, it's a problem that, that, that hampers a lot of socialist optimism. Yeah. Um, uh, I am against socialist optimism, like fundamentally. I, I've noticed. Um, I've noticed. Um, you and are they're... you are you are the gravity. You are the gravity. <laughs> if if there's levity, uh, you know, like I think of a, in occult terms sometimes. If there's levity of like the the utopian socialist, you are the you are the gravity that brings it down to earth. Um, not that I have any problem like joy and arts or, or certain kinds of consumption. Um, but 
nor am I a hair shirt socialist, but I just got, I, I'm going to tell you guys, um, people who are trying to sell you on infinite energy are fucking lying. Yeah. Are they're stupid? Yeah. Um, we do have enough resources for everyone currently on this planet at a steady state. If we do not consume the way we are consuming. Um, I, I don't like saying if we consume less, um, I do think consuming differently is important, but I want to tell you also that like I garden, um, I don't currently have a garden cause of stupid zoning reasons, but I garden, um, I produce a lot of food. I could not survive off the food I produce. There is no way. Yeah. Um, and if we, if I did, uh, produce subsistence levels of food i probably would do less work a day but i could not hold down a conventional job all right net energy in net energy out yeah exactly it's a system there are senses in which net energy is is distorting because there are some people who try to who have tried to tie like all economic uh growth onto energy expenditures. It's like people who try to um, apply Malthusian uh, logic to capitalism. Um, neither one of those really works. Uh, Malthusian logic doesn't apply under capitalism because of the efficiency scales and because of the incentivation of the incentive of efficiency. But the, the, the kind of the dark side of capitalist efficiency is that it's, totally materially wasteful because production must continue no matter what and it must amp up no matter what because the amount of profits per unit will decline and i know there are people including marxists who will try to tell you that is not the case if that was not the case planned obsolescence would not be necessary exactly planned obsolescence is a way to keep profits in the system because if you were just doing things correctly making good shopkeeper profits your profits would go down because you would saturate your own market eventually. And then what do you do? Right. And that's not the logic that Marx lays out for the declining rate of profit, but it, it's not hard to work out why all classical economists believed it. It wasn't just Marx. Yeah. Um, the other thing we need to think about is entropy in systems. Because this is where I'm just going to tell you, Greg, if we don't do it ourselves, these kind of massive restructuring projects, it's going to be done to us. Uh, yeah. And and this is this is why someone like John Michael Greer kind of scares me, because I think he's people like him. Not not many people are paying attention to him right now, but that type of that type of thought is going to get picked up on. By somebody. Right-wingers are going to pick... So right now, my big fear is on three levels. Four levels, actually. I, I Four levels. My fingers were correct and my mind was not. Um, is that socialist and the left in the United States and in most of the West is actually in a conservative position. One, in defending the liberal welfare state. Mm -hmm. Two, in defending... Um, classical developmentalism and industrial production as it has historically existed in the 50s. Three, in defending um, uh, 
the nation state as the unit of operations and as the primary unit of efficiency and for of defending early 19th century centralization against other more nimble forms of organization that came out of 20th century understandings of physics and biology. My friends, I am implying that most of the people who call themselves socialists are actually conservatives. And that the reactionary right is way beyond that. It's, even liberals, to some degree, are way beyond that. Because while the socialists are right, another world is possible, their vision for another world has not taken these things into account. Yeah. Or they hand wave it away. You know, yeah, I, gay yeah, luxury I, space communism or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, this is the frustration because I, you get in a conversation with somebody about these things and they're hand waved away or it's infinite energy or it's, you know, whatever the excuse is, depends on the person, depends on the context. Um, but me, I'm just, I'm just like bashing my head against the table thinking, all right, well, that's not going to work. What, what, what? Each of the, you know, like some of the solutions I can imagine are, you know, more aligned the lines of something that would be instituted by, a, you know, a nation, a, a government. Um, and some of these things are, you know, like, like you're saying, like these conservative, like these inherently like conservative things that are just kind of resting on things that came before. But if you really want to get there we know those things aren't going to get us there, but we also don't know what is. And I don't, I don't know. Like, well, I'll I, give you the classic things that's come up in conversation after conversation and people don't realize how related it is, is to ecology, except occasionally liberals are beginning to, to talk about it, but their answer is basically, we just need to let people in. Hmm. Um, you have a fundamentally destabilization of societies around the equator many of whom have an excess of population and excess of men. When I say an excess of population, I don't say we need to get rid of those people, but for what they can sustain within closed systems, uh, all right, in those nations, they can't do it. Not, not without a declining rate of life. Um, that will lead to massive movements of people. It historically already ha always has. And when we had natural changes in climate, this is what happened. And when this happens, geopolitical, like the ancient world was a time, like the end of the Roman Empire really was a time of this. And there's a, like, we can overdetermine, like, we, why did Roman, why did the Roman Empire fall? I'm literally doing a whole podcast that's going to be talking about this and changes in mode of production um, as analogous to now, but also fundamentally different. Um, but there's too many reasons to state why the Roman Empire fell. And also it didn't fall from some places for a thousand years. Um, yet there's massive movements of people because of change of migrations, change of technology and change of food um, around the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, a lot of people go, well, that means we need to keep the immigrants out. You can't. You won't be able to. Unless you just want to sustain the border on a ma on just a wall of brown bodies, yeah. I mean, uh, Haiti right now. Do you think these political trajectories are going to survive that? Do you think they are eternal? 
I can't think of a nation state not whose culture or whose claim is not thousands of years. I know China changed to be it claims to be like a six thousand year old culture, as does Egypt, as does Korea. Their polities are less than a hundred years old. And their cultural, their cultural myths about the about how much continuity there is between the current cultures and their ancient forms are kind of modern. Yeah, the world can fundamentally change in the next hundred years. It could be a case where we're talking about imperialism and all the nation states, blah blah blah, and who's going to be top dog, and none of them, as polities, survive the century. And the way we know them now. That yeah. is easily possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I just see chaos everywhere I look. Uh, and the more, the more I, the more I look, the more I realize I have no idea way, which, how this thing is going to crumble or whatever it's going to do. First thing about a situation that is in high flux is don't assume you know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. I mean, no, I mean, I'm serious about that. Like, this is why I'm just like, I'm always snapping people down. I I, I say this for survival reasons. All right. You want to survive in a hostile environment. You have to treat every twig break as a potential threat but not necessarily freak out like it's a, like it's a threat, which means you have to treat it with a certain degree of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have existed for only about 150 years in the modern world and only about 70 actually in the current situation that we're talking about. Um, and in a time where these kinds of threats seem very distant, um, but this is the revenge of Nicholas Tlaib on Steven Pinker. <laughs> yeah. And if you yeah, don't I'll, get that joke, you should yeah. look up debates from 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I personally don't get it, but I can only imagine I, I'm looking forward to seeing a debate where he gets, um, he gets the counterpoint because it's like, yeah, things are going great now. Like, well, I mean, I mean, you you do know the Stephen Pinker argument, right? The battle angels of our nature. Yeah, yeah. This is, is getting this progressively is, uh, better and better. Getting better. Everything. Yeah, it's the it's what it's what every um, you know, it's what every civilization says as at its height, right before. Right. The, like, it's, well, Stephen Pink, uh, Nicholas Lee pointed out that even with Stephen Pinker's own data, there's tails and there's heads and tails of violence, and it doesn't. It's not a progress in any time that it comes in waves, um, and that. It, we might be in a particularly flat wave. Now we haven't seen a, a return to a lot of mass violence. Uh, maybe because we were expecting it to come in, in forms of conventional 19th and 20th century warfare. Hmm. Um, yeah. We weren't, we weren't expecting it to be by natural attrition. By natural attrition, I mean by the fact that we start throwing border walls up and everybody starts becoming weirdly nationalistic at a time period. I mean, one of the ironies about the places that are becoming more and more nationalistic is that they would be dying societies without immigration. Yeah, yeah. Now, what does this have to do with all this ecology stuff? Well, this is all fundamentally tied into that. 
it's not just about ideologies and beliefs. It's also about how hot your area is and how much food you can grow. All right. Egypt used to be a net export of grain to the entire known world of, of Western Asia and Europe and a good portion of North Africa. Now it is a food importer. Yeah. Well, another thing I wanted to talk about was the inability of people to think in systems. Right. Well, that's right? kind of what I've been ranting about for like four yeah. weeks now. And and it's 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 and I, I need to I need to read up on some of the people you mentioned because the the systems theorists I'm familiar are with are with are like Gregory Bateson and mm-hmm. you know some people tangentially through John Michael Greer because he would bring them up, but 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 I'm more I, a lot of the systems theorists I pull are more complexity theorists. Technically. Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to check some of that out because that is kind of where my head's at right now, and. But it's it's crazy because it's it's weird. Like you talk to somebody and they don't ask. It's a lot of it isn't hard, you know. Like a lot of it is complex and difficult to grasp. But on a certain level, it's it's easy. It's like you have to be the child asking questions, you know. And like the concept I always use is like something from Marshall McLuhan actually, because I think it's the easiest way to describe it. And he had this idea of figure and ground and it's kind of squirrely, like a lot of his stuff is, but whatever. Um, But you know, you have the figure, which is, you know, the, the figure in the, in the picture and then the ground, the background. Right. And people always concentrate on the figure. They can't, I think of like the car commercial, all right. And the car is just being sold as this idea of freedom and you hit the open road and you're in your car and it's great. And, you know, and there's no other cars in the road and stuff. But like in reality, that car needs has a supply chain that stretches across the world, which includes mining and manufacturing and parts are shipped to different places. And there needs to be roads that need to be made for you to drive your car and tolls and laws and gas stations every so often. So you can refuel and all these things. And this thing that seemed like it was free and just this one item is this thing and this huge interconnected system that you're a part of it's not this free thing and it's the same thing with this when people show me this phone and tell me about how great it is i'm like yeah it's great but it's it's useless without the internet and it's even more complex and is connected to more things but you you don't see that i remember when i was a kid on long beach i grew up on long island on long beach road in oceanside there's a place where there was a uh, a shopping center, and then on the other side of the road there was a power plant, and there was a landfill, and like you usually don't see the loop closed. Usually you see a plate. Usually you look at a system and you see a part of it, and if you're not really paying attention, you can't see all the other thing it's connected to. But mm-hmm. seeing those things together was i don't know maybe maybe it had some sort of effect on me because i was the type of kid who asked questions was like, well what do they do with it after you throw it out it goes to a landfill okay you just keep filling it but um but yeah it's 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 hard for people to think like that though because 
you know, the advertising and I'm going to sound like, I don't know, some sort of uh, ad busters person, but like everything, everything kind of is geared towards that. And that's interesting. That's another kind of ethic or whatever you want to call it um, that went away. And for the most part, I, I don't, you know, like miss that popularity of something like ad busters um you know i I think it was exactly the kind of like i don't know like rad lib um anarcho whatever you want to call it anarcho liberal nonsense yeah that 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 tried to be radical but in another sense it's like yeah you shouldn't think that buying things is going to just solve all your problems Uh, you know like i i think there's something about that that is worthwhile i think there is like you know yeah you don't want to be a complete hair shirt but like uh, do you really need all this shit that's being uh being advertised to you either like i think there i think that some people could use just a little of that just a little just a little like you know well one thing i will say about a lot of socialists i know and i'm gonna be mean here um is that they will talk about i'll give you an example of this um the emissions uh study that says like 90 90 of emissions are industrial is like what is it but when you actually look at that the the industrial, I think something like 75% of those industrial emissions are actually from their consumer use. Yeah. So they're type three, they're labeled as type three emissions or emissions from use post-production or something like that. So like there's a way in which, okay, yes, the old, you know, ethical consumer problem is bullshit. Now we can get into why it's bullshit. um, And it is, but the idea that this is just on the back end of production and thus you are absolved from responsibility. When I first heard that study cited by socialists, I thought that they were correct. Then I went into the details and I saw that, no, there's a complicated system, even in this data between use and back end. And you can't set, you can't totally separate one from the other, but also consumer trends are driving this, um, but if they're not like to a certain degree, you either think people are helpless in the society that they're setting up or you think they can do something about it. Socialists tend to do a bait and switch where they talk about how we could be another way. But then like everything is always infinitely prolonged to um, the future revolution or whatever. Um. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's exactly it. Like that, that, uh, that statistic about most emissions coming from manufacturing, it's like, okay, but who, yeah, who's buying the manufactured goods? We're all, we're all buying them, you know, like it's uh, people. I mean, everyone wants to get, let themselves off the hook. No one wants to admit their complicity in the thing. And like, you, we're all complicit, you know, like we're complicit right now where, operating on servers that are you know using god knows how much electricity and uh uh, you know it's you can't i mean i don't know it's it's tough i don't i don't know how to square that circle in fact maybe that's the problem people are trying to square that circle and have it both ways all the time right you can't square that circle 
Yeah. Because there is another sense in which if you if you do this, what does it fucking matter? Yeah. Well, like, and that's and it, yeah. that's true on any individual actor. That is true. What you do as an individual, like I I recycle. Um, I used to keep only one car that became unfeasible for me, unfortunately, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is a sense in which the social setup in which we live, particularly in the United States, demands certain kinds of use of of certain kinds of products. And we're totally set up our cities that way. And we set them up even before we really knew in in a real sense, when you think about the interstates being built in the forties and the fifties, and we're not really understanding climate change to the end of the fifties and the sixties. Yeah, there is. And that most of the emissions weren't in the atmosphere yet for real. Yeah. Um, We really didn't know. We had no idea what we were really doing. Um, But there are, there is a sense now that like, even if you were to say like tomorrow, Let's say this tomorrow. Let's say you want to get rid. You want to have electric cars. What the hell do we do with all the gas? Like I can't afford to buy an electric car tomorrow. Even if you like, you basically would have to give it to me or trade it in for the exact leftover price of the car that I currently own. Which, by the way, for me would be nothing. Um, because you know my I owe my car outright. Um, and I've driven the same car for for as long as I've been in the United States, and it's been on the road for twenty two years. Um, which is its own problem, right? In one sense, I am helping the environment by not buying a new car and contributing for this. But I know that if I was to buy a new car on my consumer end, I would be using less energy. However, that is not factoring in the creation of a new car. Which is probably most of the energy uh, uh, that 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 is that that just most of the energy used is associated with that car is actually in the creation of the car, not uh, even in its use. Yeah. Well, and I was, I was listening to an interview with uh, Richard Heinberg uh, last week on, who was it? uh, Douglas Rushkoff's podcast. And he was saying like, yeah, if we build all these turbines and, and solar panels and, you know, electric vehicles. And uh, even if we get good and, you know, create blast furnaces uh, for steel and kilns that are more efficient, like we're still going to be using fossil fuels to make all of that stuff. Like, cause we don't have the technology to do that. So like, even, even the, you know, even if like, even transitioning is going to put a lot more carbon in the atmosphere it's uh, let's take another i mean now now when people talk about this they admit you don't just have to we are now at the point to stop feedback loops we don't just have to stop putting carbon in the atmosphere we have to take it out yeah so there there is no organic easy way to do that um um no there isn't not in a not in a short time frame i mean this is sci-fi, but I, I sometimes think of like what, what's going on out like out west, and just think Dune. You know what I mean? Just think, all right, well, there's got to be a way. Someone's got to figure out. You know, we if we're gonna have work programs for people in this green new deal, have you know ways to very slowly turn everything green. But then God knows what type of you know cascading effect that's gonna have. If you... The thing is, if we're if we're assuming a capitalist society, there's no way to really do this. No, nothing, no, none of this. It's it's one of those it's one of those catch twenty two bootstrap problems. It's like, 
you know, you, you need the, you need a, you need to not have a capitalist society, but if you didn't have a capitalist society, you wouldn't have this problem. Well, I don't know. I mean, I will say, well, maybe not. I will say, I was about to say like Soviet union did a good job in turning Azerbaijan into a wasteland. I'm just like, (laughs) I just like want to be careful when we talk about this, unless you think that, you know, a lot of people will say that the Soviet union really was capitalist. Okay, fine. But then you, you have to go to like pre-modern societies for anything not to be capitalist. And for some people, I, I don't even know what you find it then. Um, but my point, and my point's been for a long time, um, is that we do have technologies that would make this a hell of a lot easier. It is none of it is going to be a simple fix. None of it. All right. Anyone telling you that Green New Deal or not, they're lying or they're stupid. And I'm, I think you should have it in that strong of terms. No, no, you that's should... that's that's why I get so upset with the nuclear people because you're either you've either bought a line from the nuclear industry or you are just a, you're working for them. Like that's it. Like it's where's not that infinite energy. And same goes with fusion. I would love for fusion to be viable, but as far as I can tell, I'm not a physicist, and this is another problem because someone in order to have all the competence the competencies to understand this like the person know. i know who went into climatology was trained to be an astrophysic they have a phd in astrophysics i just want to point that out like yeah yeah that's the kind of a there wasn't enough job in astrophysics and b the 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 the, the calculus is and and stuff related requires you to have that kind of level of math to be able to really do the systems theory at a meaningful scale. Like I can talk about systems theory. I understand basic systems theory math. I can't do the kinds of calculations that would predict outcomes like this. I'm not sure, frankly, that they exist. Hmm. Um, Because even though our modeling on climate change has been, has pointed us in the right direction so far, it has been too conservative at every, at every scale point. Hmm. Um. And I understand being that conservative because like if you come out and say like, yeah, you know, by 2020, um, basically your Paris Accord was was a waste of time and you might as well have pissed on it anyway. Um, because ba- I mean, and I actually said this. I remember saying I remember saying to someone like, yes, Trump's going to do damage to the environment. But if you think the Paris Accords matter. You're, you're like the people who told me that carbon trading was going to offset this enough for um, 20 years well, ago. Yeah. Um, you know, and you still hear this and you're just like, okay, so you're not carbon neutral. Great. whoop de doo um, Yeah. 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 Um, do you want to hear what how I got kicked off John Michael Greer's blog? Sure. <laughs> Cause this this has to do with the consumption thing. I uh I think uh I, I don't remember actually I'm not sure what comment got me kicked off. He IP bans people, so you can't even like try and put a different screen name on there. Um but it was it was either when I pointed out well, I had made a comment to him about um 
like, uh, you know, lifestyle stuff. And like, so do you actually think I asked him, like, do you actually think this is going to do enough to avert the catastrophe we have? Or do you just like think that, you know, like the, the, the we're just going to this is just for when everything goes to shit for people to cope. And he's like, no, I I think that, you know, you can get people to get on board with this. And I'm like, I don't know. I do some of this stuff and I talk about it, but I haven't seen many people getting on board and I don't think it's going to be enough to, you know, to get there. So he, and I, you know, I gave him shit about it. Um, so it was either that one or it was when I pointed out the like gross, like, uh, uh the, the, the false dichotomy he was putting between like uh, Antifa protesters and like not picking, you know, proud boys or three percenters or whatever. And instead picking like hotties for Trump or something like that. Um, and so somewhere in there, he, 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 he asked me and I, I can't comment on his blog anymore, which I'm not too upset about, but I thought it was funny. Um, well, he a lot of people in this in this milieu will play the radical centrist position, yeah. Um, and and talk, you know, um, it, it worked for him for a while, but I don't think anybody's buying that anymore. He came out as a conservative. It was kind of it's kind of obvious, but in around Trump, he came out as a conservative, and... right? Well, it's kind of like the uh, you know, I had a a, a friend of mine actually who was involved in Atasha. Um, who, you know, um, went from vaguely, uh, un, you know, anti-civilization to primitivist to the, you know, to fetishizing, uh, Mexican primitivist insurrectionaries to fascism was a world gift, but it didn't kill enough people. Okay. You know, as if the problem was the amount of people in the world in in and of itself um which i i I still don't believe like i know that that statistic is thrown around and like one it's been thrown around the same statistics been thrown around between five and eight billion people um is the carrying capacity like yeah yeah the carrying capacity but two i think from what i look at it's still true but you got to be honest about yeah, and, and people could survive with relatively decent lifestyles and like Cuba levels of healthcare. Um, but you're giving up a whole lot. Yeah. Um, you need to go back to. Um, um, you'd have to limit certain kinds of transportation, and in fact, old forms of transportation that were animal driven no longer seem possible just because the scale of animal husbandry would not be possible to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, although I do sometimes wor- worry if we get into like a Polo Pagliucci world, for those of you who remember these books from 10 years ago, and we start trying to bioengineer our way out of these problems. Oh, yeah, because that's that's going to work out great. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of those books is yeah, it doesn't yeah. work out so great. But yeah. they do. I mean, like they start, you know, they start building like they start gene splicing giant mammoths and stuff to do to do caloric labor mm-hmm. um there's people talking about bringing back mammoths right now um i saw that last week i don't who knows if i I, I mean for one thing 
Um, I I don't tend to have an apocalyptic worldview only because I think that gets people off the hook. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, um, one, that's one thing I agree with people like Greer about is that, you know, the apocalypse thing is like, is like you thinking that you're going to get out of this quick. No, no, no. It's, it's falling apart slowly. And yeah. And over time scale that it's, you don't notice it all. I think the only reason that like I became aware of it was small things in my life and then traveling around the world. And like, I'll give you an example. When I lived in Toro, Mexico, um, there, there's water there. You can't drink it. Now people say, Oh, you can't drink the water in Mexico. They're being racist. You, you, you usually can. Um, not everywhere, but like in Mexico city, you can drink tap water, grow up. Uh, but the reason why you can't drink it in uh, Torreon, same reason you probably shouldn't drink it in a lot of places in um, Arizona. The cattle industry there has drained the aquifer so far down that you're now dealing with the settling of heavy of heavy desert metals. One key one is arsenic. And you can literally watch the lagoon in 50 years retreat and, and like pictures from people in their lifetime watching this area become more and more desificated um, in northern Mexico. Now, it was already in a desert. It was in an extremophile environment. But it, it illustrates how fast certain precarious resources are declining. Similarly, you go out to Fayoun. Um, which used to be a freshwater oasis. I don't know when it stopped being a freshwater oasis, but it was like historically, it's historically famous for this. It is now a salt water, uh, uh, it's now a salt marsh that is in pretty rapid decline from evaporation. Hmm. Um, there's also the problem that in Cairo, while there's plenty of water in the dam, the dam actually increases the evaporation capacity of the, of the Nile. And that is not dealing with the fact also that uh, the the Aswan Dam has totally destroyed the traditional ecosystem and probably affected the agriculture there irreversibly. But that it's also a big target. So if like Sudan ever wanted to get rid of Egypt, it could blow up the dam and like their 80 percent of all of Egypt would drown within like an hour. That's how much we're changing the world. And um and there are knockoff benefits, uh, benefits and side effects throughout the system for everything you do. Yeah. Our fixes would also have unforeseen consequences at this point. Um, if people think you can go back to a 19th century lifestyle, like James Howard Kunstler, sometimes Greer will, you know, Greer's like, Oh, we can get people to do it voluntarily. And he does a lot of it voluntarily. I mean, he really does. Um, um, I, That's I think, nuts. I, I think nuts. I think it's ridiculous to expect wide scale pe- people to go back to living, you know, like in the 19th century or earlier. But I am pretty warm to the idea of like not adopting every technology that comes along, you know, to but 
But again, that's not something I choose. That's a that's something that is subject to the forces of economics and history and culture and all, all these other things. It's not something that that is easily manipulated by individuals. Yeah, well, let's get another example of this. Remember when everybody was pushing ethanol as a subsidy for for gasoline and originally for, speaking for of, quote speaking environmental of, grounds. Uh, negative negative net energy, by the way. Yeah, because it's totally negative net energy because you're pouring on nitrogen and uh, nitrogen petroleum fertilizer onto those corn onto corn. Corn's also a terrible grain to do it. And when we did this it in the immediate run at first literally caused a rural food crisis because so much food growing land was converted into fuel growing land just for a net increase in alcohol usage. Um, you talk about like hippies not thinking things through. I mean, it was also in capital, but it was, you know, I remember all this. I also remember us thinking we could use post-consumer diesel. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that probably it, a lot of those stations seem to have died. Um, uh, but you know, and post-consumer diesel probably is a good way to get rid of, uh, certain kinds of uh, food oils in mass quantity and in a responsible way that just means that your car smells like a fry shack. Um, Not so bad. But, but there's no way to produce enough of it to, for it to be an alternative fuel system. No. Right. So like as an individual consumer choice, yeah, it's okay. Um, it's not, it's not even like, that's an interesting conversion because it's not even technology that totally requires huge, huge technological changes to a diesel engine to do like oh. it's not hard you just clean um out, you, you clean out some grease traps from a restaurant and right it and it, it'll work um but at scale it immediately falls apart but what you know um but uh the, the same is true with that ethanol thing i remember when everyone was talking about how alcohol could replace it's cleaner burning um <sighs> blah 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 and i'm like yeah, how are you going to produce enough alcohol to run all the oil in the world just in just in just in like post-consumer vehicles you know yeah well and, and this is an, <laughs> this is another thing that drives me crazy about like electric cars it's like we're talking about electrifying the grid that powers our homes and our you know our businesses and everything but then add on top of that, you know, uh, having the grid run on green energy and then have all the electric cars in addition to that run on green energy. Like, and on the same grid or it doesn't work, which is what we currently have a problem right now. Like the grid, most grids are regional. You, you can't drive um, most electric cars all the way from one side of the country to the other because so many of the power grids are regionally pr- uh, um, proprietary, which is crazy. Um, wow. But you guys know that, right? You you can't, like a lot of electric cars could not drive across country because you can't plug them in everywhere on the same equipment. That's just bananas. Like, I, I don't even... <laughs> Uh, speaking of not th- being able to think in systems, like uh, 
You know, you just take for granted the gas station. You say, oh, let's just put <laughs> let's just put charging stations everywhere. That'll be fine. I mean, there is a real sense in, 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 in the idea that everyone having a personal electric car is still kind of a cop-out. Like, having good public transportation really help, particularly in urban areas. Um, but no one really wants that. There's NIMBYism, um, which has been a big problem. Like, they've been trying to put commuter rails in Georgia between cities for forever. But it was like, oh, no, we don't want people coming into – well, they can drive into your city now. Um. So there's that problem. Um, there's the fact that a lot of the co- consumer rails are set up idiotically and run parallel to roads. So they actually don't allow a whole lot of efficiency. Yeah. Um, and they just piss everyone off and they get hit by cars or hit cars. Um, because apparently we can't even figure out how to do subways again, even though we figured that technology out in like the 20s. Um. And but and, and to be fair, in some areas you really can't. Um, the ground's not suitable for it or whatever. Um, but it's or it's, it's going to be uh, underwater mm-hmm. in another decade. Well, yeah, there's that problem. Um, I think we, you know, I, I I've been coming to terms that one of the most historically important cities to me, I, I don't see surviving two decades. Um, and that's, that's Louisiana. Uh, it's new Orleans. I I say Louisiana, but like, I actually looked at the map of what's likely to happen to most of Louisiana. And it's like, yeah, my, my, for my birthday this year, originally my wife had plans for my 40th birthday to take me to New New Orleans because I'd never been and she loves it. And, uh, because of COVID that didn't, that didn't happen, but maybe within the next year or two i'll get to go and see it before it's underwater because it's uh i mean i i never we never uh, you know where i live in poughkeepsie i've never had any flooding uh two weeks ago when we had the tropical storm come through i had a half a foot of water in my basement um luckily you know everything nothing important got ruined but you know i had to you know pump and shop back and dry the thing out and I'm curious now, like, is this is this going to be a thing that happens all the time? Was this a storm that just kind of hit like real bad and the water level rate? I don't know. We'll say. I mean, I don't, it's not a particularly like flood prone area, but and, and it was like a big storm. But who knows? You know, it, it's well, I mean. Um, I, I've been talking to people who talk about how their community is water secure, even though they share their water resources with other counties. And they're like, well, we're fine for another 35 to 40 years. And I'm like, until the sources of your source of water dry up. Mm-hmm. So your reservoir might hold out for a while. If you assume you're going to have the same wane patterns. Um, and you also assume you're not going to be sued for that water. Um, because like the West is going to be a water rights hellhole. Um, oh yeah. Um, a lot. I mean, it's, it's a lot of industry too that's used. I mean, like agriculture and industry. So right? agriculture and industry. And I remember like discovering and like, for example, in the Bay Area, for all we talk about how awesomely progressive supposedly California is, they didn't even meter um, agricultural water use until like five or six years ago in most areas. Wow. You just had unlimited water rights. 
And I'm like, that's insane. Um, I mean, the Bay has a lot more or- water than, than like Los Angeles, but like, my God, um, considering we've centralized so much of our, our uh, food production there, that's particularly insane. Yeah. I mean, and this is like, again, one of the weird systems, you know, mess ups, like so much, ag- I mean, so much agriculture, so much of our food comes from California and, and there's water, pro- obvious water problems there. And I, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things that. I mean, we, we've kind of fallen away from talking about the water problems because California's fire problems have begun from being regionally acceptable to like, Oh my God. And Forno every year. Um, I mean, and, and I do, I am, I now live in a place that like we have smoke, we have smoke season. Yeah. That's, that's, that's just one of those like smokes. Oh, it's smoke season. Yeah. It's just smoke season. And, and we were talking about how increasingly this is mo- the fires are moving. So in California, you're used to it, but like Oregon and Washington being on fire. Uh, yeah. That. Or Oregon and Oregon and Washington and being 115 degrees for long stretches this summer. It just and that's a feedback loop. You also think about all these all these developments in the Persian Gulf. I mean, you talk about the Middle East. Well, let's talk about the Middle East for a second. There's increasing populations with increasing affluence, and it's over 120, like half of the year. How are they handling this? Because literally to survive certain parts of the year, particularly in some of those buildings, you need air conditioning. Yeah. Well, that exacerbates the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I I don't believe in Gaia theory. And I do believe like, while I don't think you're going to have an apocalypse, you can live in a hellhole. But I do think a lot of anthropic stuff and a lot of energy, a lot of the effects of this energy use are coming home to roost in a very real way. And while I, I do think just saying degrowth, degrowth, degrowth is, is it's not just a non-starter. It's actually probably the wrong way to think about it, honestly. Yeah. Um, it's different growth. It's thinking about growth in a completely different way. It's, it's thinking about, you know, um, stable stabilization. Um, that sort of thing, I think, is a better way to pitch this. Than degrowth. Degrowth sets everyone's conservative streak off, including including leftist socialists and liberals, whether yeah, they realize yeah. it or not. Um, because that implies you have to lose something. Yeah. Everything it's... needs to be framed in in terms of change and not loss. Yeah. Consume consume differently, not no yeah. consumption at all. Like well, yeah, because no consumption is death. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um it's... <laughs> But I also I also think you, we need to quit trying to sell people on like, well, let's go back to the farm and blah, blah, blah. You can't do that. Like even gardening at the scale that we need it to work. If we talk about urban gardening, converting urban centers and garment, which we need to do. Yeah. By the way, for uh, um, although a friend of mine thought, well, this is how we finally defeat the, the rural menace is by bringing all the urban farming in and producing enough. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh. Oh no, you will not survive in urban city states with gardens and buildings. How have you seen the amount of like, again, again, systems thinking like that building, 
like like I, yeah, I remember maybe 10 or 15 years ago I was seeing a lot of these mock-ups of like vertical farming and and just going but don't they understand <laughs> like don't they understand the limits and the economic and the energy and all, all these things and how that's not going to oh good that'll feed you know a block of people for a, a week or so what and sometimes it can get a block of people for a year if you also assume that they're not eating any meat and yeah. uh, all they're eating is garden vegetables, which also, like, come on. Yeah. Um, you need some grains or something to. You need some grains. Right. Um, I also, I remember laughing. This is one of the things I found it hilarious that this was like, uh, I almost thought Bong Jung Ho was making fun of us um, in Snowpiercer when, like, the her- the horrific secret of the train was that you eat bugs and i'm like you already like you're korean you already eat bugs like like i i i learned to love bugs in asia they're pretty good um but i have been thinking for like we need we do need other alternative sources of protein bugs have become like this weird boutique everything you talk about as an answer to this become this weird boutique hippie thing that's un, 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 unbelievably expensive but i'm like bugs are kind of a protein source i don't feel particularly bad about eating them i know the vegans will freak out but like they don't have super complicated nervous systems like what kind of what kind what kind of what kind of bugs have you eaten because i've never i mean i i like shellfish but uh you know like what kind of what's good um arachnids taste like lobster oh okay um how big an arachnid can you get? I mean, uh, tarantulas are tarantulas and tarantulas and lobsters are pretty close to each other. Okay, and the way they taste, apparently. How um, do you know how fast you can raise a tarantula? I like, do not, no, and no. I, I also am just imagining people um, uh, reacting to like massive amount of industrial tarantula farming, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, scorpions taste like crunch. Um, crickets are actually kind of good, as are some millworms. Bundegi, which is silkworm pupa, are gross. They taste like mud. Um, uh, let's see what else have I eaten that I'm not supposed. Cicadas are okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most of the stuff can be ground into high protein bread too, and so you wouldn't even know. Yeah, yeah. Um, what you were eating necessarily, and then it just has a kind of nutty, uh, like a nutty, meaty flavor. Um, uh, so bugs, but again, at scale, we don't really know what that looks like. Um, uh, I also like, I know know all of you are like, well, we need meat, meat substitutes. And I will say, okay, eat your impossible burger versus your beef burger. If you want a burger, if you want to feel like you're not completely destroying the world and just kind of a little bit destroying the world, um, the impossible burger is the better choice as far as like environmental effect, but don't pretend like it's nothing. It's still probably uh, got palm oil or something in it. And they're chopping yeah, down rainforest for that. So there's yeah. all kinds of stuff that it's got in it. That's kind of sketchy. Plus, I mean, they do to get something to taste like meat. It also has to replicate the, the cholesterol and fat content of meat. So you don't even get that much of a health benefit um, of it. But Again, if you're making those choices, these are kind of, but when people talk about clone meat and I'm like, well, what kind of energy does it take to clone an animal at scale? Drives me nuts. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we're going to grow it in a vat. Like, 
oh, you're going to use a laboratory to 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 do this. Oh yeah, I, just raise it if you're going to do all that. Like, so you're going to have vat grown unconscious meat at what energy cost, fool? Like, like this is my this is constantly my response to this is like at what energy cost are you are you offering this all? You can't. Life does not come without energy. What like, energy cost the the lab materials? I'm sure there's all sorts of plastics and other things that are being disposed of as they're growing these uh this meat. Yeah, this cultures. is this is another thing that I was like in in my dystopian system thinking. I was like, we're gonna need to reclaim plastics to make medicines. Yes, yes. Like, like we need we we need we need these plastic components for essential medicines and stuff. Yeah. Not not wasting them on on bottles i say as i drink a coke <laughs> I was gonna but say, yeah. <laughs> um uh, uh totally uh, although although th- this actually does piss me off i, I try to drink in cans because at least the cans i can uh, they are completely recycled as opposed to this and there's what, more... people sell you on plastic recycling that's a scam yeah um and there's more bauxite like there's so much aluminum it's just ridiculous i mean that's not one that you have to, you can really feel too bad about like right it's one of the few metals you can feel safely secure that we got plenty of yeah um yeah. That, which is not true for anything else yeah like anything anything <laughs> um, i mean even fieldstone guys has got to have a premium now um yeah. so you know, I also think we have to we we do have to deal with the fact that a lot of our future is going to be synthetic, um, but it can't be synthetic out of plastic. And other kind, there are other things to make plastic from than oil. Like, yes, you can make plastic out of peanut butter, but um, our peanut oils, but uh, and other kinds of high fat vegetable oils, you can, um, and they're and they're biodegradable even, um, but uh, you can at scale. Because uh, how much food land do you now have to convert into plastic land? Yeah. Um, and particularly if you're not using nitrogen fertilizer, which we really, really have to figure out a way to wean ourselves off of if we want anything alive in the ocean. Well, because- I mean, we have a way to get off of that. It's, it's, you know, it's crop rotation, growing lots of legumes, which, I mean, could be, you know, the crops you're using for, you know, if you, they could be the crops you're using, for example, for plastics. Uh, you know, plastics sure uh milks um milks. yeah i mean there's all sorts of stuff you could do like you know i've been trying to when i lived in the south i was trying to figure out how to fight the scourge of kudzu and i discovered that like it is both fiber processable plastic processable bread processable and jelly processable and alcohol processable and yet no one does it because it's not easy i mean because it's not easily controlled in cultivation but it's hmm. perfect. Like it'll take over a field in a, in like three days. Um, huh. So, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff like that. I, I was talking to uh, um, Ted Reese, a Grossman scholar, who has some views that I think are a little bit extreme. But one thing we did talk about is how much of this stuff that actually does exist right now that is fully cu- uh, cultivatable in a real hmm. way. Um but that we don't because it's not standardizable or it's not highly profitable to cultivate mm-hmm. and you couldn't control it. You couldn't market it. Um, and, and that's a real, I mean, like there are issues like that. There's also like energy production you can do off of like algae that probably can't replace like 
it, it for sure can't replace all the energy we're using now, but probably could replace some of it um, for limited lining, emergency use, that sort of thing. Um, we're not really pursuing that because, again, it's not. It doesn't scale up to. It doesn't do scale up yet. to do everything. It probably involves a massive infrastructure change, and also is not entire like it wouldn't employ a lot of people either. So the incentives to use it just aren't there. And um, I mean, I, I know it's cliche to say capitalism or the planet, but I mean, I'm not actually. Guys, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not really worried about capitalism surviving the next two centuries. <laughs> I'm worried yeah. about what replaces it. Yeah. Um, because yeah, it'll be. We could just replace it with feudal hell world. It's yeah. Possibility. Some sort of some sort of I mean, some the sort mad of maxification of of the world, but with less cars because that never made any sense. But like, that, right? What was up? Like, everything that? else, everything, everything else is about that world makes sense. But, but the cars, but uh, yeah. we, we're hoarding oil so we can run, so we can run uh, deaf cars. So we can, yeah, we can. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think people are. It's like when I watch zombie apocalypse movies. I'm like, people really aren't that antisocial within their own social groups. My God, like your view of humanity is is wild we would not have survived as a species um <laughs> but yeah i mean uh i think this is something we have to seriously consider um i, I you know uh, you know people say socialism or barbarism are now some people say socialism are extinction but i think actually there's a whole plethora of hell worlds you might get stuck with yeah i mean and also, there's some shitty socialisms that don't deal with this, too. So, um, and people are like, oh, that wouldn't happen. Yes, it totally would. If you have, like, if you have socialist co- uh, countries that are competing for resources, mm-hmm. you still have a lot of the same dynamics. You have to get rid of that. Like, you have to have some way of, like, coordination without without massive levels of, of quote, national resource competition. Or we are totally screwed. Um at this point because no problem is within the realm of one of one polity, but polities can sure as hell make it worse. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, on that note, um, what's your final, what do you, what would you, what, what final topic would you like to address before we end this today? Oh my goodness. Oh, I don't know. Um, Oh, I don't know. Um, Tai Chi. Let's talk about Tai Chi. (laughs) You so mentioned, I mean, you mentioned a bad knee before. I have a bad knee, and Tai Chi is really just works wonders. <laughs> um, yeah, stretching really does help. Um, uh, stretch. I, I do a mixture of. Well, I used to do a mixture of stretching and meditation, and now I walk my dog. Um, That's good. Every now and then, I try to get into weightlifting for about five minutes, and then I. Yeah. I uh I'm like ah this is fun but I don't want to do the warm up. Mm. So <laughs> it's like yeah the weightlifting part's great. Um to bit back on uh, on topic I think to recap what we talked about one we have to think in systems you can't separate your food system from your ecological system from your energy consumption system from your economic system from your social system. They're not really separatable. Um, and doing the bait and switch would one, oh, but really it's economics, but really we don't have any choice, but it's just a way to do nothing. 
um, or to pretend that I actually think pretending that anyone, I mean, even the Green New Deal, only within the United States, we are still screwed. It's just the United States is no longer the biggest contributor to it. I guess we can feel we can feel a little bit good that even though we really accelerated this problem after picking it up from Western Europe and then really, really kicking it up a notch, um, that we are not the people who drive the last stake into the heart of the earth. But, um, you know, that would be about what you get from that at just a national level. Yeah. Um, and frankly, I will say that I think China is more likely to do lots of that and also probably not be successful. Hmm. Um, just because the scale of population and what they're trying to promise people, the lifestyle they're trying to promise people to be able to do under Chinese style transition to communism. Yeah, they're they're doing what we wish we could do, but that's still not enough. Exactly. Like they like there is a sense in which like and, and China's not doing the Green New Deal, but they're they are they're ad hoc doing more green response technology and regulating private business but they're also this is one thing that no one on the left likes to talk about they're trying to keep their foreign investors because they need them um because whether or not you think they're socialists or capitalists they exist within the capitalist system and cannot work as an autarky so and they know that so like they need foreign investors they need to play within the capitalist system so they can only even they have real limits based on political and economic will um but they can do a lot more than we seem to be able to. And they are. Um, so I don't say this to like, to be like, oh, the way China discourse goes in the United States right now, partly because I think the United States is trying to like Biden was trying to maybe I'll get Neo Fordism if I reinstate the Cold War. Um, Those two things went together. Why not? Yeah. Like, I mean, it does seem like he was trying that for like a month. Um uh the the um there is a way in which yes china's doing what because it has less political complication than we do being a it's not really confederated and b it's not super democratic um um it can do some of this but it still exists in the hyper complicated global capitalist system even if even if you believe that it's a separate system within it, it still exists in that context, embedded as the largest producer in that context in the world, mm-hmm. and is going to be one of the largest consumers. Or it will be the largest consumer, I think. Maybe is already. I the stats on that yeah, seem very very I'm weird. I'm curious because I feel like the middle class in China has to be huge right now and it is even if it it is a smaller portion of the population than it is in the united states it is a larger number of absolute people by a lot and i know i feel this way like when you go abroad like you 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 can tell like who the new the nouveau upper middle class is right by what nations you meet abroad and increasingly the americans and the europeans have been praised by chinese tourists Uh uh-huh uh which you know priorly was like japanese tourists right Uh uh-huh um and yeah and and in a way it's an ethnic stereotype but it's also a reality um and it's not because like most people um in china have achieved like an american middle-class lifestyle they have not um uh, and i don't know any chinese policymaker who would lie and say they would be but they have come a lot closer and they have 
you know, just numerically because of the order of magnitude larger population you're dealing with. Um, uh, just a huge middle class compared, compared even to the United States, even though it's a smaller portion of their society. Um, and, and to give China also some credit, it is, even though it still has a pretty high Gini coefficient, higher than most European uh, capitalist countries are even, quote, Nordic social democracies, you know, definitely higher than that. Um, it's It has finally lowered its uh, Gini coefficient to lower than the United States. Um, um, and now, like, fairly significantly lower. So I say this to say, like, from the Chinese perspective, um, they're hitting walls, and they are, yeah. but they're doing way better than us, and they see us in decay. But from the worldwide systems perspective, this system is global. It is not modular and will not easily go back to being national without a bunch of wars. So a massive depopulation, probably of people, frankly, who are not guilty of the problem. Yeah. Um. And that is the reality of the situation if things continue at current. And what I fear is that in almost every society, not just the United States, um, this stress response is triggering maladaptive um, retrenchment. And if you study how societies collapse, that's how maladaptive, maladaptive retrenchment plus complexity equals collapse. Yeah. Um, but Retreat. collapse is not is not it's not like the mayan civilization fell in a day or that the mayans went away guys like it can last several hundred years yeah. um and which i don't know given how everything's accelerated what that looks like in our time scales but a couple we might not know every step of the cracking until it's all done and I think actually, if we were to start looking at current American political destability, we actually start with the end of the '60s, and we're still in that trajectory. Yeah, which also means that American political stability was really only from 1941 to 1963, oh. and our entire trajectory of history and our our norms that we've assumed is based on basically 17 years. That the boomers grew up with as the norm. Oh man, I have such uh, I have such resentment towards the boomers. I really do. I I I I love I love my parents and my there and a lot of people in their generation, but man, they just they had everything handed to them, and they. Uh, but that's they part do, of the they problem. Don't, they, they had yeah, everything handed to them. Yeah, and they don't. They had everything handed to them. They don't appreciate it. And they're still going on like it. It's it's nothing's going to change. And they they know or, or or they did know. Like you know, like my no, they're father, dying now. No, well, my father in law passed away last year, and he was like a climate activist. Uh, worked for mm. an NG, uh, anti war NGO. Um, you know, and but like and so like in some ways he was very like hip to what was going on and the problems we were facing. But in other ways, it was just like obvious that he you know he was just accustomed to this way of life and an expectancy that i don't expect 
the things that my parents had in their life to happen. I'm expecting just shit to be going south. And, um, you know, there are definitely days when I'm like, why did I bring kids into this? What What is wrong with me? Why did I do that? Um, you know, well, you, I think I think we one. I will say this um, from the standpoint of socialist organization. The fact that so many leftists don't have families is actually a problem. Yeah. Two. Uh, people bring kids into worse situations. Um. Uh. Um, three, um, yeah, it sucks. So, you know, I mean, like, I mean, people bring kids into worse situations. I'm going to, I'm raising them to be pretty resilient. You know, they're, they're pretty self-sufficient. In a lot yeah, of ways, teach them to swim they... in the sewers and, and make yeah. their own Mad Max machines and grow yeah. their own food. Yeah. You know, um, now I, I, I think, I think we need, I, I think all the socialist talking point, I, it has worried me actually that, a lot of the green left was kind of stupid. I'm not going to lie. It was, I mean, we remember them, you know? Oh yeah. Um, at the same token, the left that replaced them will occasionally use climate change as a rhetorical point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they don't seem to think about it much at all. No, not, not at all. It's very, it's very, it'll be a rhetorical point to do doom and gloom and we need to do this or that, or get a green new deal, but it's not, there's not, there isn't a depth of understanding there. And I mean, I don't even think I have a depth of understanding. No, I, the I more I touch this system stuff and I'm touching it both in uh complexity theory and in combat uh, and in combat tactics, actually. Now I'm really beginning to think about how we need to adapt. Um, different kinds of uh, political combat tactics. And and when I look at what the left is doing, it's stuck in the 19th century and it's going to get crushed mm. um, uh, by a system that is both, it would win in a 19th century war of attrition anyway. Um, and because there is a way in which the left has, during social media, the same tendency that everyone has, which is, I feel good surrounding myself with people like me and I feel safe surrounding myself with people like me. I'm protecting them and I'm protecting myself. And that impulse is adaptive at first. But if that's all you hear, say, and do, um, you have no idea how popular or not popular, particularly when you're, when, when you are trying to build a pop, a, a popular political movement, um, to make a lot of a lot of r- really radical changes, to have no idea how popular or unpopular views actually are in the public because you're literally censoring them, is a problem. It's a huge problem. You're either censoring them or you're hiding from them. Um, so you're going to be blindsided every time. Um, and it is. I mean, it is kind of a privilege actually to be able to do that. And we all are able to do that now through this social media bubble. But it's delusional. It's it really is a spectacle. And and guys, the spectacle isn't without energy cost, both in lost opportunity and in literal energy. Yeah. Those server farms use as much electricity as a small city. So and there's a lot of them. I don't even want to think about people doing bit crap. Uh, um or Bitcoin or Bitcoin with powered by nuclear. That's my favorite. That's just somebody actually proposed that? Oh, oh yeah, no, oh, there's, there's, uh, 
it's propo- proposed or no, there's there's something going on to that effect. Oh yeah. Okay, so to recap, net energy, look at net energy, look at complicated systems, um, start thinking about how to rat it like any vision of socialism is, is that's going to be worth fighting for is going to have to be green and is going to have to actually be fundamentally different than anything we've seen. Um, and realize, realize problems of scale are real. They just are. Um, and uh, we're going to have to think about that if we don't want massive... Like... Like, I feel like you and I actually aren't going to be on the worst end of this train. No, no, I'm pretty, I'll be, I'll be pretty cozy. I mean, I'm living, I live in North America. <laughs> Things could get a little rough, but. It probably will get a little rough, but it's not going to be but, apocalyptic, but, really. You know, I'm not, I'm not living in somewhere where the water level is rising or it's getting, you know, uh, turning into a desert or I'm fleeing from war or. Well, I mean, that might happen. That, that might happen, but, but, you know, it, I always tell Canada it's better it better be careful because like I mean actually Canadians know this, but it's it's one of these things where I'm like the United States might take your water and yeah. thus your land. And like yeah. what are you gonna really do about it? Really? Really? Calling the international community to help you? We've already destroyed those norms. <laughs> like when it gets when it gets warmer and people start migrating north, you know, and, and you try to shut the border down. I know the irony of this is hilarious to a lot. Of, although Canada is uh, supposedly really generous, um, I remember how bitter I saw a lot of Canadian liberals get about like how many refugees they were taking that the Americans should have taken. I was like, how's that? You have more land though. How's that not racist? Um. I, sure, what we're doing is racist, but of course. Um, but how is it not racist to complain about you having to take more brown people because we don't? Like, hmm, Canada. I think I think your underside is showing. Yeah. Um, which it was, of course, I'm 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 being grossly generalizing about Canada, and I don't actually think most people thought that way. But I did see it stated enough during the beginning of the Trump administration that it was like. This is a strange underbelly where you're both bragging about how progressive you are and also complaining about it. Weird. Um, has some implications. Like every, t- it also has implications. Like every time there's a political crisis and all the liberals talk about, oh my god, I gotta leave the country. I'm like, well, I want to go to Canada. You can't afford to. Um, what do you mean? It takes a lot of money for a U.S. citizen to move to Canada without having a unapproved job. Um, but beyond that, you could just go to Mexico. They'll take you. They'll definitely take you. Most there's the most expatriate, the most American expatriates in the world are in Mexico. Actually, yeah, I know a lot of lot of people I know want to go down there. So that's great. And and then they're like, but but I don't speak the language. Blah blah. I'm like, "Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm, (laughs) mm-hmm. You're not serious about this. A, yeah, A, you're not serious about this. And B, funny that the first place you think of is still liberal and white. <laughs> I'm just, just pointing that out. Like, Mexico is great. You'll be okay. Um, Spanish so it, is not hard to learn. Oh, yeah. 
at least in to be proficient enough to survive in Mexico for sure. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, you don't have to Ambrose Bierce yourself. I'm just saying. Uh, no, it, it, there's this is a complete tangent, and the, this is going to be a fun thing for people to listen to because I'm going to release this to the public. But it, it is something where there's all these assumptions that are hidden in the way people talk that mm-hmm. you realize that they're not thinking it through. And they also have a lot of the same problems that the people they're complaining about do. They're just at a deeper level and more obfuscated from themselves. Pro- projection and, is a hell of a drug. Oh my God. And like, if anything in America, both sides projecting upon the other, but like that the other side is just rampant loonies who are about to raid and invade and destroy them. It's like really kind of maddening to me. Yeah. Um, um, because let's be honest, um, um, both political spectrum probably has an equally or fairly people like, oh, there's more, there, there, there's more, uh, highly skilled people, uh, in conservative areas. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot more military and police. There's also a lot more people in really bad health. Yeah. Um, yeah. so take that as you will. Um, I probably think it would be, you know, um, it would be a very gross but weirdly incompetent affair. Um, but I also don't really think it's going to happen because, like, yes, there will be eruptions of small violence, and yeah, I mean, I think that's a real a real problem, and and will continue to be a real problem. We will have both politically motivated and not really politically motivated random violence probably increase. Um, in the immediate future, um, I think the 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 also the elephant in the room right now is um, we have seen a reversal of one crime stat in the last two years, and that's murder. Yeah, um, picking up again. It's still not like at even eighties levels, but yeah. it's we haven't seen a reversal in the murder rate in forever. Um, and I, I everybody likes to blame their pet theory. Conservatives blame. Uh, BLM, which is kind of ludicrous. Um, Liberals, it's leaded gas, right? Yeah, which is which, but that can't explain anything right now. Yeah, uh, that was my favorite one. I was like, it's leaded gas. I'm like, is deindustrialization moron? Like, it's it's economic precarity. Like leaded gas. What a what a way to sound like you know what you're talking about, and yet no, just pretend like social trends don't matter. Doi doi. By the way, the boomers still exist. Correlation like, they could still be killing people if they were all leaded crazy. Um, Correlation or- is causation, apparently. God, this is why you don't get your factoids from Cracked or MSNBC. It, I, I think they're about equal in their usefulness. Um, but it's yeah, it's something else. It, it is something else, and. You know, I, I, I right now, on one level, I'm, I I want to tell people you need to politically organize. You need to build mutual. You need to build mutual aid for dual power. You need to start building resilient institutions that are not dependent on the government, um, which is hard to do because we generally assume that takes money or manpower. Um, and which means another, and on another level, you want to get them some self help, right? Yeah, well, yeah, but on a whole nother level, like a whole lot of people need need real um, 
you can't tell people they are victims all the time and it not have a social cost to the people that you are saying they are victims, even if they are victims. Like that's the, that's the sick, sad irony, but it's kind of a social truth. Yeah. It, you 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 can't you, like you can't deny that they're victims, but you can't revel in it either because you have to. You really do have to empower communities, and if you can't do that, they're going to get plowed over. This is something that I that when I hear conservatives complain about the culture and stuff, I generally disagree with a lot of this. Like, yeah, like I disagree with almost everything, but I actually do agree with part of what they say on this. Yeah, just just part. Obviously, you you don't want to like be mean to someone who has been victimized and continue to victimize them. But you want to teach them. You want them to be resilient, and you want them to you know work through that and to to you know to, to a reasonable to whatever degree is reasonable. And yeah, the the victim culture yeah, the, is is not useful. It's it's not you. Re- yeah, it's yeah. not. But the, here's the, the result. The victim culture is not rugged individualism. It's self-discipline in the context of a community. Mm-hmm. It is self-discipline in the context of the community for which you get a lot of stuff right now. Right now, the way we experience community, if we're honest, is social friction. We are addicted to our alienation as a way to get out of that social friction. We really are. Yeah. Most people, I mean, people, and it's, it, it's not just like the PMC, like, I, I hate to tell people and JD Vance's book is a lot of vile propaganda in some ways, but like when he talks about like, they don't go, they say they go to church and they don't that being like working class people. He's right. They yeah. don't, they are pretty much playing video games and watching porn. I, why, it, it why does like 50% of the population profess faith, but like no one goes to church. This is actually a fairly new phenomenon. Um, so, you know, there is a sense in which everybody is alleviating their social friction by political extension, by making politics and identity. And, and weirdly, this inhibits their ability to think in systems. And this actually inhibits their ability to do programmatic politics or even communal politics. I'm going to say something controversial. Um, I think a focus on identity generally is, is terrible. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in any, like most, I think good spiritual traditions, like if you're, you're doing some sort of alchemy, for example, the first step is calcination, you know, and you want to burn away all the things that make up you and not think of yourself as all these other things as, you know, I am this, I am that you want to get, rid of that because focusing on what you are is well it's limiting mentally it's it's really stymies your intellect one of the the exercises that i always like to do for writing but also just for clear thinking is to write or think in e prime get rid of all the to be verbs in your writing and then all of a sudden you realize when you are making a proposition when you're, you, you know, you, you can't just say, well, this is that you say, well, well, prove it, dude. You, that's your conclusion. You know? Yeah. Of- you get bar tautologies are, um, from your, from your immediate mental framework outside of some very basic axioms. Like, yeah, th- exactly. there is existence. Um, I mean, I, I always talk about, this was, 
the identitarian the protect your identity also means protect the sense of stasis of self but there and and that makes total sense but there's this time in which stasis of self um is maladaptive yeah um crisis time is that time yeah like you have to have a fairly flexible conception of self to adapt to a crisis yeah i i am this i am that well shit's changing and you can't be that anymore so you yeah better adapt your concept of self or you know right. stuff yeah it's 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 one of those things it's uh probably this the- has been a pro and this also it's a problem for collective identities too so like mm-hmm. when people talk about the worker and they like project this image of the 1950s worker they're they're screwing themselves it's not it's it's a dead end but this is true at a deeper level across many different sections of, of the way we interact with the world and in you know, I think you're absolutely right about that. It's something that I kind of am hesitant to talk about that much because it makes me sound like a weirdo spiritual crank. Um, and I don't like those people. Um, but uh, sorry. But it's also it also is something that I, that I, you know, I am aware of the limitations of the eye. Um, yeah. And I am aware also of the limitations of the collective us when that us is not an aggregate that is dynamic, but a static image that we impose upon that aggregate. Um, and that sounds very abstract, but you can't make a group of people who exist as a collective energy that has an emergent identity fit a collective image that we force it into that can actually be maladapted to every individual pers- part of that aggregate in a way that aggregates on their own never act that way. Like, like, uh, uh, like it is rare in nature to find totally maladaptive um, uh, social systems, except in crisis. Uh, and like, when I think about that, like you look at like how bees act or something like, uh, I don't mean to go all EO Wilson because there's problems with that. Cause humans aren't bugs, but like there is a sense that you can study complexity from that and see like, Oh, it, most of these systems are fairly self-regulatory until there's a crisis. And the ones that are super rigid, when there's a crisis, they collapse. Um, they're not, they're not very versatile. And I, I, I like to remind people, just to put the fire under their ass about life. Um, evolution is 99.9% collapse. The uh, dead ends and tropic failures yeah. over complexities, stuff that'll, uh, um, mutations that'll kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's most things. So, uh, narrow is the way. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and by the way, uh, the, what you should feel good about is, um, everything that exists has currently survived that narrow way and is now making it way more narrow. Um, <sighs> anyway, uh, Greg, where can they find your work? Um, let's see. Uh, I have published some things in current affairs. I have a YouTube channel that's rebel bass bass, like the instrument or the low musical register. Um, Yeah. You can find me on Twitter, but don't go on Twitter. Stay off Twitter. Um, yeah, I, I I always go back and forth. Which is which is more deleterious to society? Twitter, which gives everybody what they want and is really kind of organically opium, or Facebook, which is manufactured opium and highly censorious and is also not playing a fair playing field. I don't know which one I think is actually worse for you. 
Um, I gave up on Facebook personally, but but Twitter also, I did notice that the insanity in Twitter is very much insane, but also very different. Um, Yeah, Twitter is, uh, I had to put, uh, see, I'm able to like pop into Facebook and pop out because I don't see anything interesting there. Um, right. It's incredible, an incredibly boring place. Yeah, it really has. But Twitter, I got to use the um, I, I don't have it on my phone and I have to use the uh, the little thing that limits me to 10 minutes, because if I don't do that, I probably won't stay there. But especially now that I've done that for a while, I, I'm kind of used to not spending a lot of time on there. But if I don't do that, it's very easy to be like, oh, what's next? Oh, this is fucking crazy. Oh, huh. And I'm yeah, also but for- it does also reward. It rewards crazy at this point. Yeah, like, it, it definitely does. It def- and I and I have a pretty good, I have a pretty good like f- automatic filter where there's certain shit that I I see and I don't even in- like I like the AOC dress thing. Nope, keep going, keep going. Uh, 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 I, 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 I indulge in the ironies of the AOC dress thing, but it's it's also fascinating to me how that is so not important. And yet it is illustrative of a bunch of stuff like um, not just the irony of wearing a tax rick thing at a Met Gala, but also that it's made by a designer who's probably a tax dodger um, that. There's no real vote coming up the tax rich and the squad votes strategically. Um, and 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 and, but then you kind of just like, yeah, but the, they're not gonna do, we all know they're not gonna do anything. Why are we continuing the discourse? Because actually, by continuing the discourse about them, we're giving them, we are continuing the feedback loop. I argue with a friend of mine about this all the time about, about like the systemic approach to how you can, he's like, well, you're being quiet. You're protecting the Democrats. You're downstream from the DMC. Sometimes he's right. Particularly when I was working for, well, I'm still working for a publisher, but I was doing book more book promo stuff. But a lot of the times I'm also like, no, but by adding, by giving them negative press, I'm actually continuing to fuel this artificial discourse that keeps both sides in the spotlight, but doesn't move any player on actually opposing anything. Like the story that I always, always remembered. You're probably familiar with the story. I think it's like a pretty well-known like rock history story, but mm-hmm. it's about, um, Oh, is it about Alice Cooper? Mm-hmm. Alice Cooper biting the head off the chicken. Mm-hmm. All right. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's and, both. I've heard it with both Alice Cooper and uh, and Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, yeah. But you know, and Frank, one's Frank, a chicken, one's a bat. Yeah, so. but you know, Frank Zappa, you know, calls him up the next day because it's all in the paper, and 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 he's like, "I hear you bit bit a head off a chicken. You tore it apart on stage." Which is like, "Oh no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that." Don't tell them that. There's no such thing as bad press. Like. <laughs> As long as right. they're paying attention to you. And that's like the little things that stick in your head, you know, even when no one's trying to educate well, you. Well, I mean, if bad press is, is so useful for for this kind of celebrity, particularly when they're not attached to their constituents and that's not their goal. Um, and you can tweet about rebel discourse and do very little actually about it at all. Uh, then 
then to continue to feed into even the bad press is in a way to continue to feed into the negative feedback loop. I, I realize that we do have to call a lot of these elites out onto the carpet. I don't disagree with that, but I think doing it on those terms, um, I don't know. It's a hard, it's, it, systemically thinking about it, it's a hard road to hoe because also if you say nothing, are you consenting to it? Are you a, like, particularly when you have organizations that have like weird quasi relationships systemically to the DNC uh, because they say they're against it, but they are, they operate within the same party quasi, you know, as like there, there's no easy way to address that except to say like, well, at some point you either have to be willing to cut ties or you have to admit that you are in that feedback loop on one side and that your protest to anything differently is self dishonest. It's not, you're not even lying to me. You're lying to you. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, that, that's, I don't know, you know, as it's as a way to end this out, I'll just say that, uh, cause we've been all over the place, but we did start, we did cover what we wanted us to cover. Um, uh, is that if you don't think in systems, the easiest person to deceive is yourself. Um, and everything else flows from that. If, if you're lying to yourself or you're, if you're deliberately putting shutters on something, all other decisions are going to be dishonest, whether you mean to or not, no matter how, and like, like your integrity actually isn't even the problem there. It's the, it's the first act of self-deception. Hmm. Um, if you're self-deluded, your integrity is irrelevant. Um, I mean, in, in a very real sense. So, and that applies to ecology that applies to political strategy that applies to economics and trying to parse economic economic relations that applies to geopolitics. And my friends, most of what you do right now on the social media is self-deceptive most of the time. Even, I mean, I, I think that's a lot of what I do um, is always tipping over if I'm not careful into self-deceptiveness, you know, um, Thinking, thinking that I can change certain things by continuing to be involved in them, or this, that, and the other things that I've done in the past, it was self-deception. Um, and that's the first blinder you got to remove. You, you cannot, if you want real power, you want real influence, you know, you really care about these issues. You cannot allow that. You cannot allow yourself to drink your own Kool-Aid. Yeah. That's a good note to end on. Yep. Um, thanks, Greg. Uh, you'll be back probably on a Patreon episode. This will, uh, this video is only for patrons, but this interview will go out to the public in the next week. Take care. Thank you. In broadcast. Oh. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them.
We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening.